And our band is so good. And I am so thankful for you guys. Um, because, no, you could, you could, yeah. The reason I like them so much, because I know if I lay a sermon egg right now, at least you could say, well, the music was good, right? So that's <laughs> primarily, no, these guys are awesome. So we are uh, continuing our sermon series on leaning upstream. And when I, when I look at the graphic that's in your bulletin, and I just kind of think as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, standing in this sort of rushing river, right, leaning upstream, except the river is the acceleration of change, cultural change, economic change, global political change. And it's, 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 it seems like things are accelerating. I mean, you know, I know that's probably what people say when they start getting up into their 40s like I am. But this is, things are accelerating. And what we know happens is when things change quickly, things tend to break. And so as a follower of Jesus, we want to stand in the river of change and say, look, we're not going with the flow. That we are going to just anchor ourselves here on the word of God and we are going to do what the Bible says we are to do regardless of the ramifications that the world may have for us. The biggest news story maybe of this last year, last couple of years, I mean there's been so many, but one of them has been the plight of refugees around the world. And we've seen the images of uh, what's going on in the Mediterranean and of course um, in the last couple of years has been accelerated by the civil war in Syria. But I wanted you just to kind of see just the numbers that we're talking about here worldwide. We are at a record high number of worldwide refugees. Now, a refugee is different than an immigrant. A refugee is someone who's been forcibly displaced from their home due to war, religious uh, persecution, they're forced to flee because when, especially your own government, stops, starts dropping barrel bombs on your house, you just get out. There's no packing. There's no, like, close the bank accounts, grab the papers and all the chairs. It's just get out or you will die. And so refugees are forced to flee literally overnight. They just go. And you find yourself at some place of safety, the nearest country. And so for in Syria, you see millions of people, refugees going to Lebanon, millions going to Turkey. And then from Turkey, they're going to Greece. And from Greece, they're wandering their way up through about seven countries until they get to Germany. But only a half a million have ever made it to Germany so far. Some will find their way into the United States. They'll go through extensive background checks through Homeland Security. It will take years of background checks because you don't usually grab all the papers necessary to prove that your kids are your kids and that that is your wife and that is your husband. And we've had refugees come to the United States without their husbands because they didn't have the proper pa paperwork or there was some sort of suspicion. You know, our government's doing what governments do. They're making sure you are who you say you are and that we're going to be safe. So refugees may make it here to the United States. And this year, um, as every year the president signs a, a bill or a law, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure what he does, but he says this is how many refugees the United States is going to take in. And this year, it's about 80,000 refugees. It's been as high as 250,000 in the 80s. So about 80,000 refugees will come in. That sounds like a huge number. It's a, certainly a lot of people. But we are at record high refugees in the world. There are 
58 million refugees in the world today. That is a record number. That is one out of 122 people on the planet is a refugee, forcibly displaced from their home. 2014 had a record number of refugees, 13, almost 14 million refugees alone, new refugees alone. That's 45,000 refugees every single day last year left their homes, ran from danger, suffered trauma, are living in a tent in the front of somebody's yard or in an alley in Lebanon or in the middle of the desert in Turkey. If you look at the lower level of our um, sanctuary here, there's 2,000 seats. That is just slightly more than the number of refugees who flee every hour of every day in 2014. There's 1,586 refugees every hour of every day. Just look around, lower level people. All these people are refugees. Before I'm done, before we're done worshiping this morning, this many people will be refugees every hour. Most staggering and heartbreaking is that 50%, 50% are under the age of 18. They're just kids. And tonight they're going to sleep under a cardboard blanket in a parking lot in some country they've never heard of. I want you to um, see the numbers because they're devastating. But I want you to see the humanity. It's easy to throw up numbers and go, whoa. But I want you to see the humanity of it. So I have this just one minute video. And as you watch this video, I want you to look closely at the people in the video. All right, so check this out. Why do you put your family in a boat, a large dinghy, let's face it, to go across the Mediterranean? It's not very far to get from Turkey to the nearest Greek island. You actually can see it on a clear day. But why do you put your family, why do you stuff your children in the middle of a rubber raft, put a, a life vest on them that was meant for the, a day at the pool, not a day at sea? Why do you do that? Because that is a safer alternative than living in your neighborhood in your home. And we live in a world where it's safer to throw your child in an overstuffed rubber dinghy in the middle of the Mediterranean than it is to keep them at home. So it's tough. We see this. We see the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. They're everywhere. 
They're in our newspapers. They're in video here. They're, they're even here in DuPage County. And I'm not talking about, when we talk about the oppressed and the marginalized, but we're not talking about just refugees, but here in our own community of DuPage County. We have story after story of oppression. People who are, who are being marginalized. People who are suffering. What does the Bible say about that? How do we lean upstream when there's 58 million refugees on the planet? What does it mean to be a Christ follower in the face of, of total devastation? Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about that, so I want you to pick up yours, turn yours on, and flip it over to Isaiah 58. We're going to be in the Old Testament today as we kind of talk about this really tough topic, and, and God has a lot to say here, as you may suspect. But we're going to start in Isaiah 58. And as you're turning there, you know, the, the last part of the book of Isaiah is all about justice. I encourage you to read it this week. Just pick a chapter and read. I encourage you to download the devotionals this week, um, too. They're excellent uh, from our website or from our app. And Isaiah is um, a prophet, and he's recording God's words. He's, he's, God say, you say this to them, to my people, the Israelites. Now, the Israelites have, um, the, the war has come. War has come and devastated the country the Israelites know what it means to be a refugee because when there's war, you flee. The Babylonians win the war and they, they take many of the Israelites captive and they force them to serve the Babylonian empire. So that's sort of the context of, of this conversation and, and, and what the people have gone through. And, and God is, is now having a conversation with them and reminding them of how they are supposed to live going forward. Going forward. So Isaiah 58, verse 1, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near them. So now God's going to have a conversation, except God's going to do both sides of the conversation. Did your parents ever do that to you? You know, where were you? I'll tell you where you were. What did you do that? I'll tell you why you did that. That's what God's going to do here in verse three. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And here's God's answer. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast a day acceptable to the Lord? So evidently, the people were fasting. Now, what's fasting? Well, you know, normally when we fast, we think of it as, well, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to give up a day's worth of meals, or sometimes maybe just sunset to sunrise, or whatever. And, you know, that's actually an easy one, right? Because you'd be sleeping most of that time. But let's try sunrise to sunset, <laughs> right? I always take the easiest path, you know? It's like very spiritual. So we're going to fast 
We're not going to eat, and we're going to pray. And, and then the Israelites took it up like three levels, like nine levels. They, they would roll around in ashes, right? You light a fire, you put it out, you get all the ashes, you cover yourself in ashes, and then you put on sackcloth, God says. I see, God, I see you. You're in the ashes, and you got sackcloth. I don't know, it's like burlap. And then you just lay down, just lay down and pray, and don't eat, and don't watch TV, and don't do anything. Just pray. Sounds good, right? I mean, you know, you see this person laying down in the, you're like, whoa, you are serious. You must love God. You must depend on him like no other. I mean, who else is going to roll around in ashes and wear sackcloth and not eat for a day? Dude, you are into it, right? And God seems to be saying, doesn't seem to be saying, this is what he's saying, really? Really? This is what you thought I meant? Just a day? Is it really just for bowing one's head like a reed? Is that really what you thought I meant? Well, Actually, Lord, yes, I, it is what I, that's not what you meant. It is what, God, what the people are doing, what God is saying to them is like, I see right through this. You are praying and you're doing it all these ways. In fact, I didn't tell you to roll around in ashes and sackcloth. You made that up. But I see you think that if you really get serious, if you lay down before me in sackcloth and ashes, that I am somehow going to be forced to act on your behalf. It's like you're saying, oh, God, I, look at me, God. I am the best prayer person ever. And because I'm doing this, and, and I know you're just going to do whatever I ask you to do. It's like the people were trying to coerce God, trying to manipulate God. And God's like, Really? Now, church, 945, you would never do this. I am, I am a 945-er. I go to this service. You're my people. You would never do this. The other two services, we're praying about them right now, all right? <laughs> and the last service, I totally railed on you, just so you know. <laughs> you can see, maybe, hear God say in 2015, Really? You just thought I told you to go to church at 945? Sing a few songs and hear a sermon? And then that's it? I'm just going to be there for you whenever you ask? Really? You see what the people have done? When you take something that was meant to draw you close to God and you ritualize it, it becomes nothing. It becomes nothing. And that's what the people did. They just, it just became a, like a thing that you do. There was no meaning to it. It's like, yes, of course I'm going to roll around in ashes. It's Wednesday. This is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to put the sackcloth on. I'm just going to do it. it. You know, I'll probably do it on Friday again. You know, that's just what we do. And of course, God's going to answer. And, it, and we could do that today. Christians do that today. Not you, the other Christians. They say, oh, yeah, I went to church. I worshiped, I sang the loudest in my row. I got here early. I'm gonna go on Good Friday. I'm gonna go on Easter Sunday. I'm gonna go on Christmas Eve. 
I'm going to go whenever they tell me to go. And God's like, really? That's it? And you don't know why I'm not in your life? You don't know why you pray and there are no answers? You don't understand? Because when you're done here, you go about your life as if it never happened. Your fasting ends in quarreling and in strife. You are abusing people minutes after you're done. Really? You mean there's more than just praying? It's not like God's saying don't fast. He's just saying that's not all that I asked you to do. It's not like don't go to church. You need to be here. This is the most important time of the week is when we come and we worship and we sing our lungs out and we hear the word of God preached and we pray together and we have community with people. This is the most important time of the week. We need this. If we're going to lean upstream, we need this time. But if this is all there is, then you can kind of hear God saying, really, that's not all I asked you to do. I want you to do this, but that's not it. That's not it. When you ritualize something that was meant to draw you close to God, whether it's praying or whether it's worshiping, whether it's reading your Bible every single day, when you ritualize it, it becomes nothing. And in our culture, it's such a struggle. Why? Because we're so busy. We're so busy. Like tomorrow we're going to go to work. We've got to do laundry. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to go grocery shopping. All right? We've got to get the kids to 19 soccer games tomorrow. We've got to start buying salt because it's going to snow soon. It's Thanksgiving. We've got to get that meal ready, and we've got to make trips. And we're, we've got this long list. We're like, check, 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 check. And go to church. Check. And then start all over again. And see what happened there? Churches became one of the things that you do during the week. It isn't even the thing that you spent the most time doing. It's just one of the things. And it just becomes a check. And what happens is when church just becomes the check that you did, you ritualize it. And when you ritualize it, it doesn't mean anything. It's just like, it's just what I did. And then we wonder, why isn't God active in my life? God is present here. He wants you to be here. But this isn't it. And I go, Chris, you're killing me. When are you going to get to the, what am I supposed to do here? Well, fortunately, God keeps talking. Listen up. Verse 6. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Look, I, you know, I don't need to get into the Hebrew here. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time exegeting this because this is a pretty simple list. And I know your heart's like, I didn't just hear that. I did not just hear that. Oh God, please, I didn't hear that. Break the chains of injustice. Remove the yoke of oppression. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked. That is hard. That is messy. I live in DuPage County. There's no oppression here. I chose to live in DuPage so I wouldn't see the kinds of things that I'm seeing in the video or that I just saw in Scripture. This is a wonderful place to live. I am happy to live in DuPage County. But about eight years ago, I began to see things that I did not see the first seven years I lived in DuPage County. I began to see oppression. 
when I started meeting refugees and started hearing their stories, and all of them had these stories, and then they would tell me their story, and I'd go, that didn't happen. Like, that's like a movie of the week kind of a thing. That, that's not your life. No, that's really what happened to me. Or during our legal clinics that we have here twice a month with Administer Justice, one of our partners, the stories that I hear from the attorneys who are meeting with people, and I'm like, that doesn't happen here. This is DuPage County. Rob refers to our church as a hospital. But twice a month on Saturdays, our office area becomes the ER. Because we'll have single moms who will roll in with their four kids, and she's in tears because her husband left her for another woman. And after he cleared out the bank accounts, he literally took the ring off the finger and walked out the door. That's injustice. That's oppression. And that happens here in DuPage County. And thankfully, we've got lawyers who will offer hope and prayer for this person who has no access. Or, more, or it's, a, or it's a, a, somebody who's working in a business. Maybe it's a refugee who doesn't quite understand all the rules, and they get hurt on the job. But their supervisor, who's very kind, is like, oh, you'll be okay. Yeah, no, 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 no reason to fill out any paperwork or document anything. Why don't you take a couple weeks off? When you feel better, you come back. But when that person does come back and they can no longer lift the 20 pounds that's required to do their job, and they lose their job, what are they supposed to do? If you're making $10 an hour, you can't afford a $500 an hour lawyer. And this happens all the time right here in our community. And those are only the stories that I feel comfortable sharing. Oppression and justice, it, it happens everywhere. It happens around the world, and it happens right here. And God is saying, come and worship. Worship with all your heart. But that's not all I called you to do. Break the chains of injustice. Free people from the yoke of oppression. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked. And look, this was important to Jesus. This was how Jesus started his ministry according to Luke in chapter four. After Jesus is in the desert for 40 days with Satan, Luke four sort of captures what happens next. And we kind of call this like, this is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. This is the first sermon that he ever said. And he opens up, he goes to the synagogue and he, and he opens up the scroll and he reads from the book of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What is good news to the poor? He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is good news to the blind? That with Jesus, in eternity, you're no longer blind. What is good news to a prisoner? That with Jesus, in eternity, you are free. And Jesus sets down the scroll. He sets it down, he gives it back, he sets it down, and then he sits and he's, getting, he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's gonna have a sermon. And the first words that Luke records is, Jesus says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the day. 
justice was important to Jesus, so important that in his very first sermon, he says, this is why I'm here. I'm going to bring sight to the blind. We're going to free the prisoners. And then you read through the New Testament, and you see that Jesus spent a lot of time fixing things that were broken. Right? He healed lepers, the paralyzed, raised people from the dead, the sick and the poor, but not just the outside things, but the inside things. How does the song go? I once was blind, but now I, I once was lost, but those are things that happen on the inside. That's the gospel. The reality is, is that we are oppressed by our own sin. It corrupts and destroys and hurts and there's no rescue from it apart from Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That's the gospel. I think part of the reason that God wants us to spend so much time on behalf of the poor and the oppressed is because we are the poor and the oppressed. I don't look like it. I mean, I'm wearing my Killer Banana Republic outfit today. (laughs) I'm gonna eat today three or four or five meals. I don't look like that, but on the inside, I'm wretched. I'm a sinner. My yoke is heavy. And with, apart from Jesus, it will remain that way. With Jesus, I once was blind, but now I see. So when I read what God wants us to do, in my own heart, I think, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where that's somebody else should do that. I will support them. I'll, I'll, I'll give them money. I'll wish them well. I'll offer up some prayers. But somebody else should do that. Because that is yucky stuff. And you know, God didn't give me the gifts of dealing with yucky people. He did not give me the gifts of working with the oppressed and the, and the hungry and the naked. I, that's not what I'm supposed to do. And I think that's precisely what God wants, though. Look what he says. He says, share your food with the hungry. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now, who would turn away from their flesh and blood? I mean, when we say flesh and blood, we're meaning our brothers and sisters. But can I tell you, when I meet um, people from this part of the world who are refugees, like my Iraqi friends or Iranian friends, within 10 seconds of me meeting them, you know what they call me? Their brother. Their brother. In fact, when I pick them up from the airport, they give me a hug. Thank you, brother. I've never even met this person. I can't even pronounce their first name yet. They see me as flesh and blood. I think what God is saying is, I I want you to share your food. I want you to share your shelter and your clothes. This isn't some abstract concept. Sung Chan Ra is a professor at um, North Park University in Chicago, and he just wrote a book called Lamentations. And in the book, he says, justice must move from the third person to the first person, and from the abstract to the concrete. In other words, this isn't like those poor people. You should never say those poor people, because they should be in your life. We should be sharing meals with them. We should know them because they are right here. 
and to do otherwise, you're actually avoiding them and you're doing it intentionally because they're everywhere, even in one of the most wealthiest counties on the planet. For me, this was like um, scales being removed from my eyes when just one day, when our church was getting ready to do local impact and we were really concerned about, uh, about our local witness, and we had this tremendous global witness, but what about locally? What are we doing? And I'm like, I don't know. What? I don't even know where to start. And then all of a sudden, I started noticing people in my community I had never seen before. And I'm like, oh, they're dressed like they're from Africa. Is it like a holiday today? No, they're from Africa. They're refugees. They're from Burundi. They're from Sudan. And then I started seeing others from Burma. And then the United States started bringing in Iraqi refugees. And, and my wife and I said, well, we'll, we'll help resettle refugees. I don't even know what we're doing. And, and we had a, a single mom and her four kids living in our basement for two weeks. We'd literally go to bed and I'd look at my wife and go, honey, we have Iraqis living in our basement. <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. But if you were a single mom with your four kids and you were forced to flee the country, where would you like to spend your first two weeks? In the basement of a friend? In safety, knowing that you're going to have food to eat and heat or air conditioning and a soft bed? More importantly, what is the number one thing that you need if you are poor, if you are living under oppression? It's friends. It's people. When we pick up refugees from the airport, this is, this is what they're told. Um, the refugees are told um, after maybe three years of waiting, they finally get permission. All right, you're going to go to Chicago, and you're going to be there, and then somebody is going to pick you up at the airport. Good luck. Not, I am not exaggerating. That is how it goes. And then I show up, and I say, are you Muhammad? Uh, yeah, I am, I'm Muhammad. Is that your wife and these your kids? Yeah, that is. All right, come with me. And they do. <laughs> I don't like show them an ID. I, I just, you come with me. And they're like, okay. I mean, I don't look like a serial killer, but still, you don't, you don't know. And I take them to their apartment. And people from Wheaton Bible Church have provided all the things that they need for the first few days. They have beds and towels and plates and stuff, and you guys collect that, and when we distribute that. But what they need most of all, but beyond that stuff, is they need a relationship with someone because they don't know what's happening. And they need a friend. And shouldn't that friend be a follower of Jesus? It's our opportunity. When they come to speak with an attorney, I want that attorney to be a follower of Jesus. Because we might be able to fix their legal problems. We might be able to find people new apartments. But that doesn't save them. Only relationship with God, who offers the free, grace-filled forgiveness of all sins. That's what saves. But sometimes you've got to offer a cold cup of water before you can get to that conversation. Because if you're a refugee family and you've been traveling for years and your kids are suffering unspeakable trauma, and we all know what that does to the brain of a developing child. And your first word to them is, hi, would you like to know Jesus Christ? 
Did you know that God loves you? They're like, really? God loves me? I've been a refugee for three years. There is no God. But you spend time with them, and they begin to see the compassion that you have. The willingness that you have to go out of your way to love someone who's hurting, they're going through a divorce, they're, they're a refugee, or, or, or there's some other thing going on in your life, and they're like, why are you spending all this time with me? And you say, because I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and he has sent me. He has sent me as if he was speaking through me to you. God loves you because I'm standing in front of you and I'm trying to help. That's what God wants. And what happens? What happens when we do that? Look at verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, and if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not speaking as you please or speaking idle words, then you will you find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You understand if and then, I use this with my kids all the time, if you do your homework, then you get 30 minutes of iPad time. If you eat your spinach, then you get a cookie. If you give me a big hug, I will not eat all your Halloween candy. <laughs> if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then. We understand this. If... You break the chains of injustice and feed the hungry. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And who doesn't want that? Of course, it's not our light. It's the reflection of the light. It's not our light that breaks forth like the dawn. It's the reflection of Jesus' light through us to people. They will see your good works. And then they will ask you why. And then we will say, because I've been freed. I've been freed. I once was blind, and now I can see. So you may be looking at this and going, okay, okay. Well, um, I'm not doing any of this. I'm not, I haven't fed anybody. And uh, I, I barely pay attention to the news. And uh, I don't know of any oppressed people. Okay. That's a good admission. So we say something here at Wheaton Bible Church, and, and, and we say it all the time. You, you come as you are. What's the date today? The 8th? November 8th, 2015. You, you, this is you today. You come as you are, but you just don't stay that way. Right? So, so November 8th, 2020, we look back and we go, 
I, I heard what God was telling me, and now, yeah, in my life, I, I see this, and I, I've been able to help people, and, and I noticed people I hadn't noticed before, and, and I have a burden for, to, to help people who are hurting, who, who are suffering, and, and by the way, it was people in my own family I didn't even know about, because we have this in our own families, and then I noticed that, like, the, this, the new kid at the school, well, I could tell he wasn't from the United States, but I had no idea about their story, and I got to know them or the child that was on my son's soccer team, or whatever it might be, is like, you know, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up. It's just don't stay that way, right? How do you know? How do you know that you're really worshiping God? That that's not just some sort of pious, fake experience? That you're not just something checking off the list? How do you know that you're not doing that? Because you ask your spouse, and you ask your friends, and you say, are you seeing any change in me? That's how you know. You find people who are going to be honest with you and say, do you see the change in me? Because look, if you're coming to church and you're coming every single week and you say to your friends, do you, I've been going to church for five years, do you see any change? And they say, not really. Then you may be making the same mistake that the Israelites are making. But starting today, going forward, when your prayer, your fasting, your worship lines up with what God has actually called us to do, you got it, you do both, your light will break forth like the dawn, and you'll say to your friends, did you see any change in me? And they're going to go, yeah. Hey, for sometimes that looks really like shockingly changed, and sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we're selfish, and we forget. And that's why we come back to worship. And if you're going to lean upstream, it's, sometimes it's, it's going to be tough. But we hold on to God. And we hold on to his word. And we wrestle with it. And we repent. And then we come back on Sunday and we do it again. Let's pray. Father, these words are, are powerful they're convicting in my own life. Forgive me, Father. There are times when I come and I want to worship, but my mind is already drifted off to whatever is happening tomorrow. Help us to be present here. Father, we ask for you to detox us from the messiness of the world so that we can go out and do it again. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to those we see on the roads this week, our office mates, the classmates, the parents of our, our children's classmates. Open our eyes to the opportunities we have to build relationships with people. Help us to overcome our fear and our anxiety about getting to know people who we fear. Be with us as we wrestle through this. And help us, Lord, to celebrate when we see the kingdom expand because of our obedience to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.